This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning. It's one minute past nine. You are tuned to 102.7 3RRR. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. Good morning, Bron Burton. My name's Dr. Beach. Good morning, Dr. Beach. How are you? Well, thanks. How are you? I'm very well. We haven't seen each other for a while, have we? It has been a while. Yeah. Nice to catch up with you. Indeed. Likewise. Mm-hmm. Kent's in the studio too with us. Thank you very much, Tim, for his uh, jazzalicious version of Vital Bits. It, it, the bits it, it, that I heard. It, just wonderful. And, and it reminded me that I forgot to thank Tim when I was, you know, in your chair, Bron, two weeks ago. Terrible thing. You Tim, thank my, him may may I'll, I'll thank him retrospectively. <laughs> Every morning for thank, doing that. Thank you, Andrew, for soulful bits. Hey, our program today. Actually, I realised uh, having a look through uh, when I was um, putting a little note on our Facebook page yesterday, we're very whale focused, at least for the first two thirds of the program. So uh, we've got Dave Donnelly coming in. It's we're midway through whale watching season at the moment. Uh, when it, when we say whale watching, that's a very human folk centred sort of view of the whole thing. But and anthropomorphic. Well, sort not so anthropocentric. Anthropocentric, yes. So halfway through the annual whale migrations <coughs> along <coughs> Australia's east coast, so Dave's going to come in and give us a mid-season review. Yeah, when they're in spots that we can see them. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, nice to have Dave in the studio. We've spoken to him on the phone lots of times. Last time I spoke to him was at Phillip Island, um, at the Phillip Island Whale Festival. So, yeah, beautiful to have him here. Fantastic. I heard it was excellent. Fox yeah. was in last week, so it was amazing. We'll try and get there next time. Mm-hmm. I've not been here, but we'll try and work something out. Yeah. <laughs> we, could, we, could, we could get a marinara house down at um, Phillip Island or something. Oh, that for would weekend. be fun. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Let's... Uh, we'll all have a sleepover. Yeah. Like a caravan at Rosebud. <laughs> Woo! Five go to Phillip Island. Yeah. 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 And bring Timmy the dog. I, I could bring my 1978 Viscount Supreme. <laughs> this is getting a little out of hand. Um, Dave's also going to talk to us about vessel regulations, what you are and aren't allowed to do by law in terms of getting too close to whales and dolphins as they go past. Good to know. Yep. Uh, we're going to catch up with Terry for a dive report. She's actually teaching down at Portsea and getting ready to dive in the uh, cold and briny blue today. She is such an active marinara person, marine person. She is, she's always out there in the water doing things, teaching people things down in caves. She's just wondrous. Yep, she's wonderful. Yeah. Looking forward to speaking with Terry. And then in studio, we're going to be joined by Stephen Amos. He is a Melbourne-based filmmaker and is responsible for a new documentary about Sea Shepherd and in particular their Zero Tolerance campaign. So the film is called Defend, Conserve, Protect. Uh, it has little snippets of narration by Dan Aykroyd in there as well right? Uh, and uh, and largely focuses on zero tolerance campaign but really brings to light the incredible work of Sea Shepherd. I've just heard in Things to Do Today um, there are talks down at Seaworks today aboard the Steve Irwin so Steve Irwin and Bob Barker and um, the Bridget Bardot Sam Simon. Sam Simon so those four ships feature very prominently in this documentary. It's wonderful I watched it yesterday and really looking forward to speaking with Stephen about this I look forward to seeing him as well. Yeah, opens at the end of this week. And Jeff Maynard's coming in. Uh, he's bringing us the July instalment of Sound Waves Meets Blue Waves. And all I know from Jeff is from what he sent me in recognition of the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. He's bringing us astronauts, sharks and sunken submarines all in 1970s <laughs> TV show. I look forward to that. 
<laughs> as long as it's not Fantasy Island again, I'm still scarred by that from last time. Yeah. So that's our show. Uh, I uh, Shall we uh, have a look at what the weather's likely to do today? Uh, the weather, it's, it's going to be 15 degrees today, a uh, minimum of 10, uh, winds about 9 kilometres per hour. Yeah, but we'll north, 30 to 45 kilometres per hour north, and then shifting northwest and easing 20 to 30 kilometres an hour during the morning. So I forget that nine kilometres I just said. Less than one millimetre of rain. Tomorrow, 16 degrees, 15 Tuesday, 14, 16. You get the idea for the rest of the week, Bron. Mm-hmm. Um, not too much rain. Well, up to five millimetres on Wednesday, perhaps. Okay, Wednesday's going to be the wet day. Yeah, Wednesday will be the wet day. Uh, for those of you heading out on the water, you want to know what's happening with the tides at Point Lonsdale, which, of course, is our heads of Port Phillip. Uh, 8.25, so half an hour ago, it was low tide of 0.42 metres. Um, I wonder what Dr Surf's doing this morning, if he's out surfing or I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Anyway, it says here on Swellnet, Surf Coast, Bells Beach and Winky Pomp have slow sets up to one metre best into the afternoon. Mornington Peninsula, a little too big and too windy, affected across the open beaches. So a bit big on the Mornington Peninsula. Thank you, Dr Beach. That's, that's fine. Got some news? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I, I just saw this morning in the um, in the Guardian, there was an article about a guy called Dr Greg Neely, who was from the University of Sydney. Uh, well, it's a university in Sydney. They don't say which one it is. And he is onto something which he thinks is a, um, a potential cure. Well, not a cure, but it's going to stop the sting of box jellyfish. Um, so they've used a novel technique. Screening cells with CRISPR technology, which you might have heard about BROM, which essentially knocks out particular genes in cells. So they've taken human skin cells, chucked box jellyfish venom at them and looked for the ones that survived. And in those surviving cells, they looked for the defects of what genes have been knocked out. They were ones for cholesterol biosynthesis. So it turns out if you don't have active cholesterol in your skin cells, then that's not going to allow the venom to get in. So now they can potentially jump to tests with creams and ointments and stuff, which will kind of interfere with the cholesterol in your skin. These are various hydrophilic, hydrophobic compounds. Um, And they believe, pardon me, in this very early stage that this has got a lot of potential. In Mm. fact, they got the stuff published in Nature about a month or so ago. So very, very early days at the moment, but it appears that if... Well, they're hopeful, they're postulating that um, you might be able to use such ointments on people who have just been stung by a box jellyfish to alleviate the skin and stop the venom getting in. Now, whether this gets into the circulatory, whether this stops it getting into the circulatory system and then to the heart and killing you, they're not sure yet. So, a lot of work to do, but very interesting, exciting stuff. Yeah, step in the right direction. Yeah. Cholesterol. Who have thunk it? Well, yeah, I mean, just to, we all need cholesterol. Cholesterol often gets a bad rap. Yeah. Heart disease and all that, but we need it in every one of our skin cells. Otherwise, we'd be lumps of membranous jelly on the floor. Yeah. That's cool. Hmm. I have a small news item. This has uh, come out of the Gulf of Mexico. New shark species, which has just been identified. It's called a pocket shark. And uh, there are all sorts of pocket sharks that are around there, but this is a new particular species. So it's a pocket-sized pocket shark and has these groovy little pouches up near its front fins Mm -hmm. and uh, they squirt little glowing clouds into the ocean. So it's been named... (laughs) 
I'm going to get this beautiful image here. Double out of a pocket shark. I'll get this shark coming out of your pocket, Bronda. And now it's squirting stuff all over the place. <laughs> Isn't it awesome? Luminous, luminous clouds, did you Luminous say? clouds, yes. Mollusquama mississippiensis. And there's only one other pocket shark that's known to science. And that particular one's uh, 400 mil, so about 40 centimetres long. Um, it was an adult found in the um, Pacific Island off, uh, Pacific Ocean, sorry, off Peru. This one's much smaller, so it's only about 14 centimetres long, 142 mil. Newborn male, so it's a baby one. Um, but they've found these little muscular glands filled with pigment-covered fluorescent projections and speculating now on what those squirts are being used for. So at the moment, they, they think that it might be um, used to deter predators. I'm wondering whether, given it's a deep-sea creature, whether it's potentially used to attract prey. And I'm wondering what's, um, what's causing the luminosity. Are they bacteria? Mm. In fact, as often happens with many deep-sea yes. fishes, for example. Like we talked about that on this program a bit, how they can be luminous, and that's caused by bacteria they carry around with them. So maybe the shark too. Pretty cool. Yeah. There you go. 9.14, you are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 R. Welcoming now into studio, Dave Donnelly from Killer Whales Australia. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Drs. Bron and Beach. Good morning to you, Dave. Great to have you back. Great to be here. Yeah. Let's start with uh, the uh, whale festival at Phillip Island a couple of weekends ago now. Wow. What a success. Great. And what great weather we had also. Uh, just over 6,000 people showed <gasps> up to the event. Uh, which allowed us to uh, have to rethink how we're going to do it next year because we're certainly growing out of proportion. We, we did it. We did our job too well in promoting it for you. I think it was you guys. <laughs> yeah, K- Kate and I spoke to you a couple of weeks ago and you were very excited. You said the weather was beautiful and, um, yeah, weren't any whales happening while we were on the phone, but apparently just after we hung up, they showed up. Yeah, absolutely. Always you know. happens. <laughs> Always happens. We had one show up uh, uh, straight after we spoke. Yeah, that's correct. And what was it, humpback? That was a humpback. It was a fair way out to sea, but um, nonetheless it was a whale and we got our people's eyes on it and uh, very excited families down by the beach who'd braved the uh, early morning conditions. Wow, so they could see them just off the, the beach near Cowes? Uh, no, this was no? off the uh, Cape Willemai Surf okay. Club area. I was going to say. Then we moved up to Pyramid Rock and saw a few, mo- a few more up there. I would have been surprised if it had been that close. In, or was oh, in they actually time. were. They oh, were they right were. off the jetty, uh, The I think the two days before. <gasps> and just this week as well. Fantastic. So how did cows cope with 6,000 people? Look, I, I really don't know. I, I was out in the field uh, running around doing spotter whales and presentations, so it was difficult for me to get a handle, and mm. the number of 6,000 was a, a surprise to me. But uh, certainly the streets were very busy, just like they are in summer. So I think we've done our job in terms of getting people to the uh, uh, to the island during the low season. Yeah, Wonderful. Uh, yeah, all the um, all the traders and other people must be very happy with you. I think they're starting to get on board now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really. hey, the that, that, this whale business this is pretty good. <laughs> it's only whales. That's awesome. It's only whales. Yeah. So as I mentioned, we're halfway through uh, the whale migration pattern season. Is that the right way to that, Yeah, well, for Victoria, it? we certainly are. We're, okay. we're, we're about halfway through the northerly migration and uh, it's been... Um, yeah, it's been a, a funny season, but we've uh, we've had some great weather and we've had some poor weather. Uh, we've had uh, just this morning, latest update, just over 200 of our sighting events. 
between the Western Port and Port Phillip region. That doesn't include anywhere else. It's just that two bays region. So that's a significant amount of animals coming through. Yeah, is 200 up on previous years? It's actually down a little bit from okay. previous years. But we're, we're just analysing some of the reasons why that might be the case. We don't think it's less whales. We think it might be in the way in which the data is being collected. So we're right. going to get to the bottom of that. But uh, it's been fantastic. We actually had a southern right whale cruising right next to a humpback whale at Cape Shank this week. Um, one gentleman gr- grabbed a photo. So that's very, uh, very unusual. And it's very interesting to see. Is it unusual because they tend to travel in groups of their own species? Uh, typically, yeah. Well, southern right whales are often solitary. I mean, you can twos and threes, and a bit like a bit like humpback whales. They're a little more social. But to have the two species cruising next to each other is not something you see every day. Yeah, right. Wow. That's quite lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Harmonious. P- yeah. That. yeah. <laughs> That's great. So they're travelling north... And at what point do they turn around and start to travel south? Because I know that from the, the many times I've been up on the New South Wales south coast in September, they're all kind of starting to travel south. Yeah, so that's right. When, when is the turnaround point? Uh, look, the, the turnaround point is really about the, the destination, mm. I suppose. For most animals, that will be the carving grounds. But for some, this is humpback whales, by yep. the way, um, for some who don't need to, reproduce or can't reproduce yet maybe they don't make the full migration and just hang around a bit oh, okay. so that the, the migration as the population gets larger is stretched and it's quite long and uh, we've got whales that are probably already carving in the carving grounds and we've still got whales here in victoria so this is something that's evolving over time which relates probably to numbers but for the southern right whales it's a lot different they're at the peak of their migration here yeah. uh, they'll be hanging around our coastlines for the next few weeks before they head back to the subantarctic fantastic uh, where are the carving grounds for the southern rights? Southern right whales in Victoria. We've got uh, a nursery down at uh, Logan's Beach, Warrnambool. Okay. Um, and across to the west, head of the Bight and southern uh, Western Australia. Uh, there's probably other areas that were carving grounds which uh, haven't been reinstated yet since the end of commercial whaling. But mm-hmm. uh, certainly we're starting to see more and more southern right whales heading to the eastern side of our region. So hence the uh, humpback and southern right hand, hand in hand or fin in fin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so w- around what time can people expect to see um, potential carving around wa- around Warrnambool? Uh, around Warrnambool, I think the ca- first calf was several weeks ago okay. now. Um, I can't remember exactly the date, but it was probably about three to four weeks ago, um, and that was at Logan's Beach. So uh, very exciting times for the southern right whales, which are struggling but um, starting to make a s- very, very slow and almost significant change in terms of their recovery. Yeah. Have there been any sightings in um, either of the bays, I mean, like deep in the bays? I mean, last year I remember there were quite a few sensational ones. There was. Uh, one of, in particular was the Williamstown sighting with the Border Police. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, this, uh, this past week we've had them uh, had a humpback whale at Altona and the week before we had Aspendale and Edith Vale with humpback whales. That was the same pod moving up the bay. Uh, and just last week we had some southern right whales in the bottom end of the bay. So they're, they're sort of popping in and out but not spending much time. And any more reports of orcas? Last time we were in we were talking about orcas. There was a lot of excitement about an orca. That's right. Well, we have had a few sightings of them, but um, they're sparse as always. Uh, Just this week, we've got an unconfirmed report from uh, between Apollo Bay and Lawn, Mm -hmm. but uh, we've yet to see any photos of that one, so we can't confirm that one. But the timing's okay, and perhaps it was. We hope so. Yeah, great. Now, I wanted to ask you, um, this was off air, that you and I were communicating, and you mentioned something about a match from Phillip Island to Port Stephens in New South Wales. 
What's that all about? Yes. Uh, so humpback whales, just like humans, they come in all shapes, sizes and um, shades, if you like. And uh, certainly humpback whales are not always black. Um, they have different features on their bodies. And one way you can identify them is the, uh, the markings on their flanks, particularly for what we call type 1s, which are high white flanks. Uh, we ran into one, not literally ran into one. We'll talk about that later. Uh, but we, we found one while we were on a, a Wildlife Coast Cruises whale watch from Phillip Island photographed it and sent it to a colleague in New South Wales. Um, because these are so unique in their markings, I thought oh, somebody will know this one. And sure enough, uh, my colleague at Port Stephens matched it to a 2015 sighting where she had photographed it. So uh, it's really nice to be able to start to see matches to our East Coast um, animals, up, even as far up as Byron Bay and Harvey Bay. It's yeah. a long way. I guess from, from a whale's perspective, maybe it's not, but to think that you've, you've actually got a confirmed sighting of the same animal at Phillip Island and at Port Stephens. Across four years. Yeah. Yeah, and we've got one across nine years, I think. And one of the matches we had from a uh, off-topic Tongan whale, we matched to the, um, uh, the Antarctic Peninsula, and that was over a nine-year period, over 9,000 kilometres difference. Mm. Yeah. So that's, uh, they get around. <laughs> um, let's talk about the regulations. We mentioned that at the start of the program and uh, you kind of, we just made reference then to literally running into whales. Now, um, I understand there's been some issues with some harassment of, uh, of the whales by people who are getting a little bit excited and wanting to get a little bit too close to them. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's an annual event, the, the whale migration. It's an annual event that we have people interacting with whales, um, sometimes not always in the best interests of themselves or the whales. Uh, in the last week, we've had um, two, two incidents which have shown up in images, um, people concerned about the way boats are behaving around whales. Um, so I guess without going into too much detail on those events, the best thing that people really need to take home from this message is that if you're in a vessel and you see a whale remain 200 meters away from that animal um, don't get in front of it don't get behind it if you remember those three things you'll be fine and presumably these are private vessels they're not charters or anything like that no these are private vessels as far as we can tell from the images mm. um, they are cl clearly seeking out the whales in the footage and photos that we've seen but that's just my opinion yeah yeah well, good to have that reminder. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah, not only for whales, but for dolphins and all sorts of... For dolphins, marine. you can go a little closer. You can okay, go to 100 right. metres. Right. Um, and for if you're on a jet ski or something similar, you need to remain 300 metres away. Those are the, the key messages, I think, from the regulations. Yeah. Thanks for that. Now, what's <laughs> coming up between now and, I guess, the next month or so for you? Uh, for me, for the next month or so, lots and lots of getting the data right before we uh, take off to go and do some work in, in Tonga. But um, hopefully uh, we, we'll see a few more sightings and a bit better weather than we've had in the last two weeks mm. and be able to compile a little bit more about the story of whales in uh, the two bays regions of Victoria. And then we'll be looking towards the southern migration after that. Cool, but you're not going to get out of here without telling us more about Tonga. Yes. That, that's too tantalising. You've just left that there hanging. And I'm going, hey, I want to come, I want to come. You thought, you thought we hadn't noticed, didn't you? Yeah. Just drop the Tonga in the conversation. Yes, yeah, Tonga's an interesting one. It's, it's a, uh, we tried to, to set a standard over in Tonga whereby we're trying to improve standards of um, ecotourism and we also, amongst that, do a little bit of um, haphazard research. So some mark recapture on humpback whales that are under, underside of their flukes, uh, matching those to places like the Antarctic Peninsula and others. Yeah. Uh, and also recording the humpback whale song, which is then an analysed by our colleagues at uh, the University of Queensland, who are uh, forever working on the evolution of humpback whale song as it makes its way across ocean basins. 
Amazing. Well, we're going to definitely keep tabs on that one, aren't we, Dr Beach? And you mentioned before something about a Tongan whale, but I guess there's not a Tongan species of whale. It was humpbacks in Tonga. It's humpbacks in Tonga right, and, okay. and it's within a, a population or populations. Uh, I'll leave that to people with higher pay brackets and higher IQs to work that one out for me. <laughs> <laughs> like Alex Node, who you're presumably working with in Queensland, you mentioned before. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we just look forward to getting over there and, and enjoying some of that work as well. I think yeah. there needs to be a band called Humpbacks in Tonga. What do you reckon? <laughs> uh, let's do it, Bron. <laughs> Really? I'll be on the I'll be on count caravan across there too. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Dave. Good on you. Thanks, guys. Delightful Appreciate as always. We look forward to having you in in a few weeks' time. I look forward to it. Thank you. Brilliant. Enjoy Tonga. Yeah. <laughs> Send you a postcard. <laughs> We're seriously going to try and get ourselves on that trip, aren't we, Dr. Beach? Mm. 9.27. You are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR and we're now crossing to Terry Allen for a dive report. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? I'm very good, very good. I'm down here in, believe it or not, sunny Potsy. Is it really sunny? It really is. It really is. Yeah, the wind has actually blown the clouds away and it's now dropped and it's looking pretty good. Now, you're teaching down there today. Are you going into the water? Yes, yep. We're doing um, open water. So we did the first part of the course yesterday up in Brighton. So we're able to, luckily, we can tuck in out of that strong northerly in uh, Brighton Bay in Hampton uh, off South Road. So we got two dives done there and now we're down in Podsey and we're going to do a wall dive this morning and then we're going to probably go outside through the heads and do um, Cray Reef, I think it's called, but we won't be looking at any... Well, we won't be catching any crayfish. (laughs) I think we used to refer to this back in the old days as rough, tough diving, actually getting out there, you know, and and the, the premise being that if you can dive in Port Phillip Bay in July, in the middle of winter, you can pretty much dive anywhere in the world. Um, is that kind of still, is still the case, yeah, Terry? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I, I can't believe we've got... Well, we had uh, we had, we had nine people doing... Well, we have nine people doing this course, which is amazing. I thought, you want to learn to dive in the middle of winter? OK, that's all right. But, uh, I think sometimes people don't quite comprehend... Uh, that it is a bit chilly. Um, amazing. Those guys yesterday, we had 10 degrees in the water up, up in the northern part of the bay. That was insane. Which, I mean, I normally would see 9 or 10. I would have thought August, September. And for some reason, it's uh, <laughs> winter kind of came early. Are they all in 7 mil suits or are they dry suiting yeah. it? Yeah, no, no, they're all in 7 mil suits. But we give them extra layers and we give them, you know, lava core stuff and we give them hooded vests and gloves and... Yeah, I mean, they were cold. Look, we were cold in dry suits, you know. There's, <laughs> um, yeah, there's no no way around it. But, um, yeah, look, we got everything done. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing some more fishies and things today. It was a bit bit quiet at South Road. It was okay. We saw beautiful echinoderms and beautiful sponges. But, yeah, not a lot of fish, which, you know, you would expect. But, um, yeah, so it looks surprisingly good here. The wind, obviously, after gale force last night has dropped away. And, uh Looking forward to it. Cool. Uh, Terry, it's Dr Beach here listening to this. And, and you're taking me back to when I did my first open water dive, which was off Portsea. And, in fact, that, and this was the first time I'd been diving in the ocean as opposed to a swimming pool. And they took us to the bottom of Portsea Hole. I hope you don't do that anymore for first-time <laughs> divers. Because when I was down there, my regulator bro- blocked and I had to very quickly oh. learn how to buddy breathe. It was terrifying. Oh, it almost God. put me off diving. Oh. 
Yeah, no, no. We uh, well, if we ever do use hole, we definitely only go to the edge. So we only go to about 10, 10 12 metres. So, That's good uh, to yeah, hear. No, that. no. It's good to th- <laughs> we, hear that uh, things have changed since the early eighties. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember when I learned in the early eighties, and we well, we used to do drift dives and all sorts of things. And uh, yes, it certainly made us very rough, tough divers. But uh, we'd rather that people actually also enjoy the <laughs> enjoy the process and uh, yeah, come back, of course. So um, yeah. Just on that though, Terry, there is some truth in that. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I did my first dive in 16 or so years. And having. Yes, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, (laughs) finally got back out there. But, uh, and that was, you know, obviously extremely warm conditions in Fiji. The water temperature was 28 degrees. But my first dive was um, under Flinders Pier, and it was about this time of the year. Might have been late May, early June. But it was was cold and it was dark. It was at seven in the morning. I remember that really clearly too and um i was a bit nervous about going for this dive after such a long break and the dive instructor out there said it's just like riding a bike and he said where did you learn to dive and i told him what i'd done and he said oh you'll be fine you know it's it's one of those things that once you it's true once you dive in these sorts of conditions everything else just becomes easy after that yeah that's right and look we're not i'm not trying to paint it as some terrible torture that you've got to go through because you know as we know we have the most brilliant you know temperate uh, um uh, you know, ecology here mm. and, um, you know, and winter diving can be fantastic. I mean, well, days like today or, you know, you can get those really lovely glass off days and, you you know, you look past the cold water or you, you know, you dress accordingly. Um, but, yeah, we get to see some incredible things. The guys have seen some, after the spider crabs went through Blegari and now we've had fantastic, um, you know, the giant cuttlefish are back in force and they're... Um, They've been mating and we're just hoping that that sort of colony, if I can call it that, starts to grow more and more. Um, yeah, so, you know, and along with seals, dolphins, crayfish, all the usual things, you know, we really do we really do see some great things in here in winter. And down here at Portsea, it's not crawling with uh, people. That's <laughs> which right. That's great. That's the other we great thing. right next to the pier. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, we'll let you go, Terry. And, um, no worries. Thanks for that. And looking okay. forward to having you in studio. And uh, I have to get myself kitted out because I'm absolutely not kitted out for diving in Port Phillip Bay, but I'm really keen to get back under the water here locally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that'll be great. Yeah. Like to, to take you down there. Yeah, okay, brilliant. No okay. worries. Thanks. Good luck with today. See ya. Bye. See you, Terry. Bye-bye. See you, Peter. Terry Allen there with our, our dive report. Our dive reporter. Yeah. Uh, now, if you've been listening to this program over the years, you'll be very well familiar with the work of Sea Shepherd, passionate eco-activists who wholly dedicate themselves to defending whales and dolphins around the world from being hunted and killed in the waters that have been established to legally protect them. The work of Sea Shepherd's now been documented in a magnificent documentary film called Defend, Conserve, Protect, narrated by Dan Aykroyd in part and made by Melbourne-based filmmaker Stephen Amos. D- Defend, Conserve, Protect opens this Thursday Thursday, July 25th. We're thrilled to be able to welcome Stephen Amos to Radio Marinara to talk about this incredible documentary. Also, Alana Thompson, editor of the film, uh, about their experiences with Sea Shepherd and this four months at sea on their ninth campaign, Zero Tolerance. Good morning, Alana. Good morning, Stephen. Morning, Brian. Good morning. Great having you in here. Thanks so much for coming in. I watched this film yesterday and, look, congratulations. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, I watched the screener. um, We're staying off air at the Thousand Steps Cafe at the foot of the Dandenongs and um, I couldn't stop myself bouncing up and down on the chair and just sort of cheering throughout every time you see footage of the Steve (laughs) Irwin coming. It was just magnificent. Cutting through the water, I know. Yeah. Um, Let's go back to the basics to start. Uh, Really wanting to know what 
what led you to make a documentary about Sea Shepherd? I'd been doing a few TV commercials and promos and uh, for Sea Shepherd, just kind of giving back a bit, and uh, and I obviously always had kind of a love of the ocean. So it was a really good fit and they approached me and said they had a whole bunch of campaign footage that they'd been sitting on and they'd always sort of had been thinking about making a feature. So I, I ended up, they, they knew my background was in film and TV, so I ended up taking all the all the footage yep. and finding all the footage. There was, other, there was other footage kind of scattered right around the world on old sea drives and uh, ended up taking the footage and shot a whole bunch more footage and then spent, you know... Two and a half years with Alana cutting it together. Yeah. Wow, so it took two and a half years to put it together. Yeah. 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 How did you determine how to, to structure it? Because a lot of it is based around the zero tolerance campaign. But there is what I really loved about it was um, the, the personal feel as you're watching it of, of what it's really like to be part of this campaign, being on board, but all the emotions that come with it as well. How did you go about knowing how to, how to structure it? It was a, so my background was in narrative features. So what I did initially was um, had a script written. So I, I approached it like a, like it was a, like a movie, you know. Um, so we had a script written, even though we, we weren't necessarily going to use it. It was basically um, you know kind of incorporating the footage that we had, but through with a fictional uh, through line of a Sea Shepherd you know activist on the on the boat mm. and um and from that you know we, we ended up with dan Aykroyd's dialogue you know we ended up with uh sequences you know uh you know escalating action you know three acts so the whole thing was really based was based or started off around the idea of turning this into more of a feature narrative than a feature documentary and then from that uh we kind of took what worked and what sequences worked and you know obviously took you know Dan's dialogue, and ended up tipping that into the documentary. So, but we wouldn't have had that if it hadn't have been for going through this kind of unusual script process. So we yeah. wrote like a hundred and twenty page script. Wow! And uh, and that yeah, and it was an odd thing to do, but it was kind of my way in, particularly from narrative features, to kind of connect with everything. And Dan Aykroyd sort of speaks on the part of the whales in in this sort of really poetic form. How did you go about securing him in this? Has he got an association with Sea Shepherd? He did. I look at Dan's a huge environmentalist and, you know, a uh, uh, big supporter of Sea Shepherd and, you know, had been doing some work for them. And, you know, he'd been out to the, to the Barrier Reef, you know, um, and, you know, I ended up, we approached him, you know, put up his hand and said yes and... So I set off to Canada to uh, to record him. So, and it, w- it was really odd. He was uh, ended up in this uh, recording studio that was a, an old bank. It used to be a bank, and uh, and the vault was the was kind of the uh, you know the recording room. So oh. every time he went to do a take, he'd kind of he'd have to shut this oh, huge wow. bank door to you know record him. How yeah. thick was it? Oh well, it was a big big bank door. So right, it was like, right. You know, so it was like, like easily thick. yeah, foot and a half. Huh. You know, so. Yeah. Let's talk about the zero um, Operation Zero Tolerance campaign. So there's four Sea Shepherd boats involved um, and ultimately it becomes their biggest campaign in the Southern Ocean. So you've got the Sam Simon uh, and the Bridget Bardot, they leave from Hobart, the Bob Barker and the Steve Irwin in New Zealand. Um, were you there at the time in, in either of those locations as they were preparing to leave? Not at that point. Right. Uh, no. So I was, uh, you know, that, that, so this campaign, you know, was across 2012, 2013. Yep. So I came in about 2014 to, and, and kind of picked this up. Oh, okay. So they'd um, already been filming. Because there's right. this really, um, there's a couple of lovely moments with, um, with Bob Brown yeah. on the docks, right. um, both yeah. as they leave yeah. and then as they return at the yeah. end of it all as well. Yeah. So they already, they'd already had the foresight, I guess, to, to shoot some of this stuff. 
That's that's right. And it was a real odd connection for me. I'd been developing uh, for a few years prior to that uh, film on the Franklin River blockade. So I'd been working with Bob and uh, it was just really interesting synchronicity how, you know, um, you know, Bob used to kind of manage Sue Shepherd as well uh, mm. a while back. So very in- interesting synchronicity. To, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I want to spend a moment talking about Captain Peter Hammerstead and um, he's one of the most impressive people I've ever met. And he's already only 20, he's 28 and he's on his eighth campaign for Sea Shepherd. Um, we've spoken with him before and the first time we met him, he was here with Paul Watson uh, as a crew member of Sea Shepherd and yeah. he's, he's really kind of stepped into that role, hasn't he, really? Um, can you give us... Uh, and our listeners, a bit of an insight in terms of what it was like spending time with Peter Hammerstead. Did you get to spend much time with him? Uh, I did afterwards. Did yep. you uh, encounter Peter on the, your yeah, campaign? Yeah, so I went on campaign 2013-14. Right. Um, but I was on the Steve Irwin, so yes. I had a different captain. But I was able to, you know, witness him and through that campaign and his actions and he's just completely fearless he's incredible he's he's amazing and there's this kind of steely resolve when he speaks that really comes through in this film definitely and And if there's anyone you want to be on a ship with in that kind of situation it's him (laughs) and and that that comes through as well like the command of a situation when they're actually really getting into very very dangerous a dangerous situation Dr. Beach, were you going to say something? Uh, uh, Sorry, you're behind me. Alana, you were on the campaign, you were on the ship. I'm really interested to hear from you. I mean, you've given us a couple of brief insights already how much you trusted Captain Hammerschmidt, but what was it like being, I mean, going down? Were you on a, a trip to the Southern Ocean, heading down there to... Yeah, so I was on, as I said, the campaign the year after, but, yeah, it's an incredible experience. It takes two weeks to get down there. So you're battling through seasickness and... You know, at times a little bit of, you know, adjusting to living in this um, social microcosm, essentially. So it's How just you and 40 housemates in this little metal box. In and the I'd imagine ocean. a lot of those 40 housemates, this might have been one of their first big trips yeah, to sea. it was, yeah. And so it's a real adjustment period, getting used to being at sea and, yeah, not touching land for a really long time and there's no contact with the outside world and... Yeah, How was it for you watching or editing and then mm. ultimately watching this piece in its completion, having been there yourself and feeling the emotions? There's a really emotional scene where, you know, despite all attempts, there is a whale that is killed and caught and pulled aboard and you can just feel this raw emotion on the part of the crew. Yeah. How was it for you watching that? Did it kind of bring it all back? Yeah, it did. It brought back a lot of memories and there were certainly moments like that on our campaign too where... You just put everything you have into it and then, yeah, something doesn't necessarily go how you want it to and it is. It's devastating yeah. because at that moment in time, that's your whole world. Yeah. Basically, everything, every waking moment is dedicated to what you're trying to achieve. So... Yeah, a lot of emotions, yeah. I was sitting at the Thousand Steps Cafe and, like, I'm tearing up at this moment and, like, you know, seconds before I'm sitting there bouncing up and down yeah. on the chair. And it's <laughs> a roller coaster. There's people watching me going, what is she watching? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Um, I'm just interested, too, in, in your view as you're sort of preparing to launch this documentary. It launches on Thursday. Cinema Nova? Mm-hmm. It's at Nova. Uh, it's also at the Sun Cinema okay. in, in uh, Melbourne. So it's around Australia. It's selected cinemas. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, Nova and Sun have always been very supportive. So with your uh, experience with Sea Shepherd, and we've been talking about them for a very, very long time and really noticing a mainstream, it's gone from being sort of a perception of, of Sea Shepherd as being, oh, you know, those, those radical eco-warriors to being, oh, we understand what they're doing here. They're actually doing the job on the part of the Australian government. They're defending mm. these whales that are 
are in legally protected waters, these whales should expect, well, you know, they're not human, but these whales <laughs> are protected by legislation and these vessels are going down there and, and, and going against Australian law. The Australian government's not doing anything about it. This group is. Is that message finally starting to, to get through, do you think? I, I think so. I mean, I mean, with the film itself, you know, it's not... You know, it's an anti-whaling film. It's about saving species. It's you know, it's an environmental film. But the power of the movie is that it's told from activists' point of view, mm. and I think uh, you know, and that's that gives it the power and the emotion. And um, and as Peter, I think, says in the film, even you know, it's it's. I mean, we're still arguing about climate change in Australia. In politically, it's like it's insane. So you know, as Peter says in the film, you know, the, the Sea Shepherd, you know, f- kind of fills this law enforcement vacuum. And it is like the Wild West out there on the, on the, on the high seas. And, uh, and I think that's the, that's the power of the organisation is they can, they, they do step up and they do fill the gaps that, that governments just don't fill. Yeah, and that really comes through in the film as well. Ultimately, the success of the campaign all comes down to a refuelling exercise, really, doesn't it? Because as, they, as you point out early on in the film, if the vessels, if the whaling vessels can't refuel, then they can't do what they're down there to do. Um, can you talk about the significance of that to this particular campaign? Uh, with the refueling, yeah, the, uh, yeah. I mean, did you, did you, when you were there, Alana, did you um, blockade refueling ships as well? Were you, was that uh, part of no, the strategy? No, that yeah. didn't happen in yeah. our campaign. We yeah. did come under attack um, a few times. One attack that lasted for nine hours, where the harpoon ships were coming at us and trying to ram us, and yeah. it was an intense. Yeah, one of the times I was filming on the deck, and it was the first time the harpoon ships came out of the water, and I could see them coming towards us, you know, through the mist and literally coming right at me (laughs) and you have that moment where you're like what do I do do I get out of the way or what happens here and I just dug my elbows in and kept rolling and it turned a meter before it hit the bow yeah so yeah it was it's yeah it gets really hairy intense but certainly not refueling but we did get attacked an attack is an attack Mm, isn't it really that's right and we did get rammed as well yeah yeah and it is one of the major strategies to to you know I mean the Nishinmaru at at that particular point in the film had to refuel Mm. and if it couldn't I mean it had to have enough fuel to get back to Japan so if you could cut its supply lines you know it it had no choice but to turn around and within the film I mean that that it looks like that takes you know, place over like an hour or so, mm. but you know that took place over two days. Yeah, right. With constant with constant uh, refueling attempts, and you know, mm. with, and with the Bob Barker, the ship helmed by Peter, you know, blockading that, and um, it was yeah, quite amazing footage. Yeah, jaw dropping footage, really. It's absolutely wonderful. Before mm. we let you go, I want to ask you about cinematography. Um, we're talking about jaw dropping footage, and it's absolutely magnificent. Where you sort of have these incredible images of the whales. F- mm passing through the water. Can you tell us a little bit about how that was all filmed? Uh, so it's part in uh, stock footage, which was photographed by um, Dr Dean Miller. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were, I ended up on the Great Barrier Reef as well with uh, Rory, Rory McGuinness, who's one of Australia's top underwater cinematographers. Mm. So we shot additional footage with the minkies, um, and that was quite an experience to actually get under the water uh, like that. Um, but it's beautiful footage, and we, uh, most of that footage was shot on the on the barrier reef while the minkies were um, you know, migrating down. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then into into cut and into the film. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So uh, zero. Um, it's about Operation Zero Tolerance. Uh, the film is called Defend, Conserve, Protect. Uh, releases this Thursday. Uh, distributed by Label Distribution, and it's on at the Cinema Nova and Sun Theatre. Sun Cinema. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and. Uh, any plans for it to go elsewhere? Uh, yeah, there's t- we're in talks now for with international sales agents. So hopefully it'll, it'll get out there in a major way. We you know we just won the top prize, the, the largest documentary film festival 
in North America Fantastic. for the American Documentary Film Festival. So that was like a, a real yeah hoot. So that, that was amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. And yeah. well deserved too. Mm. Thanks so much for joining us thanks this morning. For, thank and thanks yeah, for having us. Fully encourage everyone to get out there and see this wonderful documentary, Defend, Conserve, Protect. It's on at the Nova this coming Thursday. And, uh, yeah, good luck. Good morning, Jeff Maynard. Good morning, Bron. How are you? Well, thank you. And I yourself? set myself a challenge for this one because, as you know, we've been doing TV shows from the 1970s. Yes. And uh, reading somewhere in some vague reference, it's the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. So, uh, I, as always in, in my segments, I try to get my good stuff in. So this time I've got a mad scientist with a beautiful daughter. I've got sharks which have been trained. Um, and my personal favourite, sunken submarine. And I've got an astronaut. So all in one <laughs> 70s TV show. So I spent yesterday <laughs> patting myself on the back for you've done for, very well for done being so topical. So um, Kent's already started the countdown, and uh, let, let's blast off with our astronaut. Three, two, one. Looks good. Million dollar man. Yes. <laughs> I know. And back in the back in the seventies, see, six million dollars was a lot of money yeah. today. Today you'd have enough to sort of remove the flammable cladding from your investment property yes. in the dot <laughs> land. But back then you could actually build a bionic man. And he had all these sort of well, sort of computerised kind of arms and legs and he could jump really high and run really fast. And it was so successful. It ran for years and they actually made a spin-off called Bionic Girl. Or Bionic, Bionic Woman. Bionic Woman. Well, and she had Lindsay a Bionic Wagner. dog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and when they got to the end of both series after years and years, they jumped the shark and they had the two marry each other. <laughs> so, so, anyway... Um, where was I? Yeah, look, underwater. Um, Steve Austin, this mad scientist with a beautiful daughter, trains sharks and he steals a nuclear submarine and sinks it because he wants to, for whatever reason. And um, uh, when people try and rescue the submarine, the, the trained sharks keep them away. And it's only about oh, three metres underwater because when you see the shots looking up, you see the surface and the sunlight, but the submarines, so people are swimming down, the trained sharks keep them away. So they send Steve Austin, they put him in a shark cage to send him down to rescue the submarine and a shark bites through the cable on the shark cage and he crashes and he uses his bionic arm and the music and everything to pull the shark cage apart, um, bursts out, gets inside the um, submarine and he meets the uh, mad scientist. Feel, I don't believe what I saw either. Your daughter controlling a batch of man-eaters in the open sea. She's a remarkable girl. A marine biologist who isn't limited to conventional thinking. Now, I tried to convince the Navy that sharks could be trained, Colonel Austin. Cynthia. Yes, Dad. Go and fetch that highly sensitive radiation counter and check him out. I don't understand. Check out his arms and his legs. See if there's a radiation reading above the background level. We are entertaining a bionic man. The first and perhaps the only one. So, no surprises, it's 70s TV. The beautiful daughter has to have a thing for Steve Austin. 
um, because he's handsome and he's got blow wavy hair and he always walks around with his wetsuit half undone so you can see his chest. And, and important, I just want to jump in here, she's a marine biologist who's not limited by conventional <laughs> thinking. <laughs> we were just told that. Well, I thought Bron when I, when I heard that. I think we could do a whole year. Uh, it, it, we need more marine biologists not limited by conventional <laughs> thinking. I've got a theory, see, female marine biologists always about 30 years old and gorgeous. So I'm going to do a whole year next year on on TV shows or movies with marine, but bi- female marine biologists, because oh, they're always the same. Damn yeah, straight. They, they always sort of come out of the water like uh, Ursula Andress in Doctor No. <laughs> yeah, that's know. right. <laughs> but say, oh look, I found a something shell or something. Anyway, <laughs> look, let, let's move on. She she starts the thing, and she has to have a chat to Steve Austin and explain what's going on. Marks, the elaborate attempt to hijack a nuclear submarine. You mind telling me why? When my father was in the navy, they thought he was some kind of a freak. He spent all his spare time, day and night, working with sharks to prove they could be controlled. So what'll he prove by hijacking a submarine? The sharks are being used to get the sub. Controlled sharks. And I don't have to answer any more of your questions. And for the first time in his life, he's going to get the recognition he deserves. It's the only way to go. (laughs) Now... One of the big things about TV shows from the 70s, they had something we don't have anymore. They had something before the days of Netflix. They had TV commercials. And so you had to structure all your drama around sort of a 10-minute segment with a cliffhanger at the end. You had to sort of go, duh, 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 so that you get the audience or people sitting on the couch at home so interested that you'd sit through two minutes of really bland commercials and yep. come back to keep watching the show. You wouldn't change channels. Uh, so so everything's, everything had to have a cliffhanger. So we've got Steve Austin uh, on board this submarine with the mad scientist, the daughter, surrounded by sharks, and it's a nuclear submarine. And the guys up above on the ship are deciding what they're going to do. Whatever problem Steve's having could be related to his bionics. Helicopter ready to make landing with the bathosphere, sir. Thank you. I'm diving in that sphere. I'm only guessing, and I may be wrong. The stingray is in enemy hands, gentlemen. And it's armed. Well, if there's any evidence that nuclear missiles are going aboard that sub, she's got to be blasted out of the water. Whether Steve Austin's aboard or not, you know that. (gasps) Fun fact. Uh, it is Soundwaves meets Blowwaves, the segments this year, and Steve, uh, sorry, Lee Majors, who played Steve Austin, was married to probably the most blowwaviest woman of the 70s, Farrah Fawcett. Yeah. And uh, she was Farrah Fawcett Majors for about, I don't know, the six months of their marriage. <laughs> and uh, she, she spent her, if you don't know who she is, you sort of just Google Farrah Fawcett, and um, she's dead now according to Google. Uh, but back in the 70s, everywhere she went, when, whenever she walked around the street, there was a guy in front of her with a wind machine that just walked in this little portable wind machine that walked in front of her and blew wind on her hair. So whenever she was photographed, her hair was kind of blowing in the wind. Gorgeous. I've still got Even, images on it. it it's, it's kind of like a... Was that um, person credited in, like, the post... In the credits after each episode, the, like the hair wave, the hair wave guy, no, guy. No, he probably had one of those things you get the leaves off the yeah, that's right. with or yeah. something like that. But <laughs> she, she, she walked around with that, and, and it's sort of like an optical illusion because you see her on the cover of the magazine. You swear the hair's moving. It's just kind of just couldn't, she couldn't stop it. But that was Farrah Fawcett, Majors. That was awesome. Oh, Thank you very welcome. much. Thank you, Jim. Illuminate. You, you rekindled memories. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. 
truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.